0: we are so honored to have you with us here today. And many of you know Mark, know of Mark. His resume is extensive and impressive. I'm not going to start listing all of the restaurants and TV networks and programs that he's been involved with. You can see all of that on the bio um, that is linked in the agenda. But on his website, Mark does list 30 things uh, that you might not know about him. I decided I'm going to take the liberty to share a few of the highlights that jumped out at me. So these are in Mark's voice. Number 20, Prince Albert of Monaco was my babysitter in the late 70s. <laughs> Number 27, my parents live in Monte Carlo. Who does that? <laughs> Apparently your parents. I guess so. <laughs> Number 12, I can't talk about my kids without getting weepy. Number 24, my wife is my greatest inspiration, and she did not make me write that. (laughs) Number 23, I love being invited to other people's houses for dinner, but no one asks me. (laughs) And then number 30, I believe that no one in our company works for me. They all work with me, and I couldn't do any of what I do without each and every one of them. So thank you for allowing me to share what's already public information. (laughs) And my first question for you, before we even get into the philanthropy conversation, is about your own personal story, uh, which came up in one of our more recent conversations. And you have such an interesting and unique life story uh, that I know our audience will enjoy because it's part of the life arc of getting you to where you are today. So I would love for you to share some highlights from your childhood. And what got us to this moment today, and what uh, led you to develop your appetite for the kitchen?
1: Okay, I'll try to make this quick because it's—I'm it's, um, 53, so it's been a while. A lot, a lot of stuff going on. I'll try to do it quickly. My father was an American diplomat, so we uh, traveled everywhere. We moved every two or three years. Um, and uh, let's see—I got into cooking because I love—I well, it's gonna be like the squirrels going around in my head here, trying to get it all straight for you. Um, I, uh, hold on. The, yeah, so I I grew up as an American diplomat, moved a lot, and as I grew up, I was not very good in school because I'm very dyslexic, but nobody knew that back then. So I had a lot of hard time in school. So I sort of credit my dyslexia with where I got to afterwards because I didn't make it to, I made it out of high school. Once I got out of high school, I didn't really know what to do with my life. So I started, I was a handyman in New York, and I was just, goofing off, living on my brother's couch at the time. And then I would cook dinner because I thought, you know, I'm living here for free, I should probably do something. And after a while, my brother said to me, well, you seem to like to cook a lot, why don't you go to cooking school? And I thought, hey, that's something that could be interesting. So I ended up going to cooking school and falling in love with cooking school and falling in love with cooking in general. It was one of those things that I thought uh, I could probably deal with being homeless, but because I had grown up in, as an American diplomat eating really well all over the world, I thought I can probably be homeless, but I cannot be hungry. I want to be able to eat. So that was sort of a, a direction that, that, that that's how I got to where I wanted to do start cooking. Basically, if that was that was that the whole story that you wanted? or Probably more. Yeah, of no, no, that's, that's I don't want great. to bore them too much.
0: <laughs> but I think one of the things also that is just a resounding part of your narrative is do what you love yeah. and you'll find your path. Right.
1: That's, that's absolutely true. And it's interesting that finding what you love and uh, I feel like I never go to work because I love what I do, which is you know how I ended up there. But I think it also ties a lot into philanthropy as well because I support a lot of hunger organizations. I feel like nobody should really be hungry. I mean, I support Share Our Strength, No Kid Hungry, because I have kids and I can't imagine kids being hungry. So it's sort of an extension of my life is an extension of what I do philanthropically. Uh, and briefly touching on dyslexia, I was lucky enough also because I'm dyslexic. I ran into a friend of a friend who started this organization that helps tutor children online. It's a for-profit organization, but she created a non-profit organization as well called Brain Trust. And because I have a connection with being dyslexic, it was a natural you know, you know marriage for me to be a spokesman and also speak and, and be part of that organization as well. So I think this is one thing that I think they were talking about earlier was uh, you really have to you know, being philanthropic has to do with, you know, has to do with you and things that you're emotional about, things that you can get involved in that will make you cry, will make you move you, you know, from deep down inside, because, um, you know, just doing that, giving here, giving there, giving there, and just doing that doesn't, doesn't usually feel as good. If you can really drill down and get into you know, something that you really care about. It's kind of fun and it's, and it's interesting. And, and I also, just to go off on that tangent a little bit, my company, I used to have 650 employees. I also find that narrowing down your scope of what you're going to uh, make a difference at. I had read this article where there was a company with 20,000 employees and the guy who run, ran it or owned it was like, well, who do we support? And he was like, they, they came in with a list of 40 different charities. And he says, you know what, we're probably not really making a big difference in any of them. Let's pick three and drill down on those three and really, really make a difference. So that's when I, in my company, I started deciding, well, I'm not that big and I don't really do as much as this guy probably did, but let me try to do that. And I did do that. So I chose Share Our Strength, No Kid Hungry, and City Harvest, which is our local sort of organization in Manhattan that rescues food. And um, it made a difference in the sense that, My team sort of knew what we were doing. They knew that Mark owned the company and we were doing these two things. And it really struck me when there's there's a, a big event that Share Our Strength does every year in New York I can't remember the name of it, but it's like everybody gets together, a big fundraiser. You guys have all been to those, right? And one of my captains, who was my waiter at one of my restaurants, unbeknownst to me, when I showed up, because we had a booth and we did our thing and I was being auctioned off and raising money, and I thought that's what we were doing. And I showed up and the sea of servers and staff were all my staff. They had, anybody who had a day off that day, she had organized them all to come and work the event for free. And to me, I started bawling, of course, because I was, you know, very emotional about this whole thing. But I, I, I never like the the, 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 um, what do you call it? The, you know, the direct reaction of me concentrating on a certain charity, and it trickled down to my whole staff, and then they got involved, and I was like, "Wow, we're not, we're now, we're making a much bigger difference." And it was, it was, uh, it was, it was really kind of great. It was, it was amazing.
0: You know, it's interesting because we often say that philanthropy is biography and we've heard from members of the audience what people give to and why it's meaningful. But that also inspires other people. And I often talk, for example, to people who serve on nonprofit boards and they say, well, you know, I don't want to ask people for money. It's uncomfortable. What if they say no? There's a fear around it. And the reality is you're not asking for yourself. You're asking for the organization, for the beneficiaries that that organization is supporting. And oftentimes when you position it that way, people are then appreciative and grateful that you're coming to them with an opportunity of an organization that's doing good work, that's been vetted, that is um, an organization that you're choosing to spend your time with. making the connection of saying, wow, I'm doing this because I'm passionate about it, but it's inspiring other people. And looking around and seeing your entire staff in the room must have really been quite something. But if we go back to earlier days, when you first had that aha of how an individual can make a difference, before we even start getting into the power of the collective, and the moment where um, you had a producer that you observed, and you saw the action that she was taking and that's when you realized the power that a platform can have.
1: Well, yeah, well, it was actually, so she was running the network. Her name is Brooke, uh, Brooke Johnson. And I, I was at the beginning of my organiz- me being involved with Share Our Strength, Don't Get Hungry. And she told me a story that the people at the, you know, the board was like, why are we getting, why is the Food Network getting involved in a hunger organization? Like we're, we're supposed to be about food. And she says, well, that's the exact reason why we should be involved about food. Like we are making everybody hungry, and now we have, should be actually helping people. And it's going to be really easy to get everybody that's on the Food Network involved because every chef that's on the Food Network is like, duh, yeah, we should be feeding people, guys. This is pretty 101 here, and you can't, you know, you can't, uh, you can't learn, you can't play, you can't do anything if you're hungry. And that's when it drills down to especially. This is why Share Strength really started drilling down and trying to help children because it's really a uh, getting breakfast in the classrooms and there's all sorts of different programs that they do and it's a national organization and and it's it's so successful uh two weeks ago i was invited to a dinner because there there's a an organization from india that came and was watching and has been observing this organization in america and the impact that they've had and they this charitable organization is now asking Share Our Strength to go to India and help them try to do the fundraising oh, and try great. to get them to get organized as well. So I had dinner with all of these, you know, very prominent Indian um, uh, restaurateurs and chefs in Manhattan and a delegation of chefs and people from Share Our Strength were going over there. So it was great to see that going that direction. It was kind of fun. And-
0: Can you share the lunch lady story?
1: Oh, yes, the lunch lady story. I did an episode on Shopped once. They called it the lunch lady episode. And uh, one of the, it was during the Obama administration. And one of the guest judges was the Obama uh, chef. His name's Sam Cass. And it was amazing. It was, everybody cried. Sam Cass cried. And then President Obama made fun of him for crying on television, which was very, very good. He called him and told me about that. Um, But he was, uh, we got these four women who were what they called lunch ladies and the stories that they told about cooking in school cafeterias in our country was was absolutely heartbreaking where she, you know, this one woman told the story of finding this kid stealing ketchup packets, and, what are you doing? He goes, well, I make tomato soup at home on the weekends because I don't have any food, right? And, or another one says, oh, it's, I made pasta. She was doing the competition, and she says, I, I made pasta, Monday pasta. And we're like, why do you call it Monday pasta? She goes, I always make pasta on Monday because a lot of these kids haven't eaten over the weekend, and I need to fill them up. And it was heart-wrenching, the stories out of this that came, and uh, and the ingenuity they had as, chopped contestants and the stories that came behind it and the 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 inventiveness that they had just to be able to get food and some of these kids Mm -hmm. was absolutely traumatic to me i couldn't believe it and at the end of the show i looked at sam i said these are not lunch ladies these are these are chefs and they're they're doing god's work here feeding our our kids in our country in these public schools it was really it was it was pretty shocking and then of course i started looking into the lunch program and when it started, it was I guess after the first, maybe after the first world war, and the generals were like, "We have to feed our kids. We have to start lunch programs." And there's a whole, and then it, it's the, the whole thing. It's just upsetting, <laughs> and uh, and uh, but but it was great to see the impact that this show, this one show, made. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got more attention um, from social media and emails and stuff like that. The, the highlighting the beautiful work that these people do. I thought it was really. It was, it was pretty touching and made me very happy to be involved in what I'm involved in philanthropically.
0: And realizing the power of a platform, right? And the fact that you have visibility that can be activated, um, not just for yourself, but also to bring light and information to people. I bet there's some people in this room who didn't really know about the lunch ladies um, until Mark just shared the story or until you may have seen the episode yourselves. So you know, continuing on that narrative um, with World Central Kitchen, Um, And before we get into your experience um, um, and how your journey led you to Chef Jose Andres and World Central Kitchen, I wanna spend a minute introducing the organization for some of you who may be less familiar with them. So Chef Jose Andres started it in 2010 after the massive earthquake in Haiti. And they are the first on the front lines providing meals in response to humanitarian crises, climate crises, and community crises, and now war. Um, And they were in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria and have helped through many other crises um, and especially during and through pandemic as well. And their tagline, which I love, is that, quote, food is a universal human right. And they've created a new model for disaster relief, helping devastated communities recover and establish resilient food systems. And after a disaster, if you really think about it, food is the fastest way to rebuild community. And it's one of the most critical, time-sensitive needs, too. Um, You put people back to work preparing the food, and you put lives together by fighting hunger. And hunger looks very, very different during times of crisis, but you also have ongoing hunger issues, too. Um, And cooking and eating together is what makes us human and makes us communal. Um, And I just love this. This is another quote from them as well. Quote, it's a plate of hope. It tells you in your darkest hour that someone somewhere cares about you. So back to you, thinking about the fact that you knew Chef Jose Andres, but I want to talk about years before when you were in Miami.
1: Right. Well, actually, wasn't years before, but so. I've known Jose for years. I know he started this organization, and we do this food festival. It's sort of like our Super Bowl. All The chefs go to Miami, and we do this big thing when people buy tickets, and all the chefs are there. So Jose, it was right before the war broke out. He's done this before at other, other meetings as well, but he sort of calls all the chefs together, and he goes, I want to give you a little update on World Central Kitchen, and he's very, uh, animated and he gets us all into a room and this is this is like the important meeting that the chefs go to none of their pr people come their their posse doesn't follow it's just the chefs in a room and we're talking about all the chefs that are at this at this festival and and he starts saying you know he goes guys this is not my organization it's our organization it's anybody who cooks is part of world central kitchen because their model is really interesting they do go in and do they they help relieve and and bring food but what they also do is they'll Like if there's a disaster and you have a restaurant and it's still operational, they will give you money to keep your staff hired to be able to buy food to feed the community. So they're doing two things. They're feeding the community, but they're also keeping these people employed. They're actually paying them to be able to be there. So it's a great, that's part of what the explanation of what it is. It's actually supporting the community in more than one way, which is really fantastic. Um, and, And then they also do relief where they'll set up big kitchens and cook as well. Uh, so, I was at the meeting and I was there, and I think the war broke out two days after this uh, in, in, in uh, Ukraine. And, and my friend Guy Fieri was supposed to be honored at this dinner, and I, I was cooking for it, and Jose was supposed to be the, the MC. Mm-hmm. Jose's gone. He went to Poland. So, now somebody else had to fill in, and it was the whole thing, whatever it went like. And so, I, in my mind, I'm on the plane going back to New York, and I'm sitting there ruminating with my sous chef who was with me, and I'm like, I don't know, we got to do something, you got to, I mean, I, and I, it was interesting because as a chef, as a person who always cooks and helps people and goes to big benefits and gets auctioned off and raises a bunch of money for different events, different, different uh, organizations, I had, we had just gone through COVID, we had just gone through the whole Black Lives Matter thing, and I didn't have a restaurant at that time during COVID. I mean, I was lucky enough that I'd closed it, but I didn't have, wasn't able, I wasn't able to help. I've always been able to help. I mean, when it was 9-11, I was in New York, I grabbed my knife kit, I went down to my friend Drew Nierpront's restaurant, I sat in the basement and cooked, and that's what we did, right? We just cooked. And so going through COVID, I couldn't really feel like it was helping. Then the whole Black Lives Matter thing kicked in, and one of my good friends who's who's a, a chef, Marcus Samuelson, and I called him, He's sitting in his house, I'm sitting in my house, and I'm like, dude, I don't know, I gotta do something. What can I do? And he's like, I, I, I don't know, man, I'm doing stuff. And he goes, listen, you, you can't do everything, and he goes, just because we're talking about this now doesn't mean you're gonna do something now, but maybe you'll do something later. So once again, tapping into the whole emotion thing, and, 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 and helping people, and you know doing something. So I get home, and I tell my wife after this trip, and this war broke out, I text Jose, I said, I'm thinking of coming to Poland to help. And all he responds is great, you know, and <laughs> with no explanation of where the hell I should go or what I should do. <laughs> so i try tried to find somebody else in the organization. You got a town you can send me to? I don't know where I'm going. Should I go to Romania? Where do I go, right? I didn't know where to go. So I told my wife and she helped me. She's, she's really organized. So she got me a plane ticket, found an Airbnb, got a car rental, got on the plane. I was going to go there for a week or two and help out. Uh, long and short of it all, I, ended up getting an airbnb an hour and a half away from their main kitchen i drove every day three hours back and forth going to work and i ended up staying there almost two months cooking we were feeding anywhere between 10 and fifteen thousand people a day we had a room we had a, a kitchen that was probably about as twice as big as this that they had set up with these huge cauldrons we were cooking and i learned a lot about cooking and volume uh and it's incredibly physical uh cooking like that you know 10 12 hours a day and and distributing the food i got to go to the border we were feeding three border crossings two train stations and four refugee centers and i had the opportunity to go out and see how the setups were and how we could make it because jose he stopped by every once in a while and we and he's very much about dignity like we need to make these people feel like, we love them, and you know, just like they're coming to a restaurant, let's make it look good, let's put the signage up, let's write it in all the languages, let's make it, you know, and I was always like, you know, I was trying to make the food as tasty as possible. You have to remember, we're feeding people that, you know, two or three weeks before we're probably sitting in some restaurant with their family, and now all of a sudden, these women are sitting there with their kids, uh, you know, with a suitcase and a, and a bag, and with nowhere to go. Um, so we. And another thing, so it was, that was pretty amazing. I mean, in my mind, it changed my life a a lot. Um, And I got to, because of my platform on social media, I raised a fair amount of money. I had no idea, but I had put a little video out that I was going and I got all these responses. So I would sit in bed and read them and cry. It was really, what a sight. Uh, (laughs) But um, the other thing I found about feeding people and giving them dignity and helping them out was, you also have to understand what they eat and what they're used to, which I learned very quickly after I made 900 kilos of pasta salad, and it all came back, and they go, they don't know what this is. They've never had cold pasta salad. This isn't something they eat. It's like, okay, then, well, we're going to have to re, 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 rework that back to making borscht. Um, but it was, uh, it was interesting that by next time I go to a disaster area like that, I guess on the plane ride there, I'll have to study up on what they actually like and eat and what they're used to, because in, when you're cooking for Ukrainian people, you definitely don't want to use very strong spices. They don't like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't like that either. I made it for the staff. And it was interesting, this, this organization, because we actually hired refugees that were coming across the border to help us as well, um, that were just there and, you know, helped out with distribution, helped out with the language, because a lot of... Them, I worked with this one woman who uh, spoke perfect English. She actually, when she showed up at the kitchen for a job, she had summer clothing. She had been on summer vacation, or she'd been on vacation somewhere warm, and she came back and she couldn't go home. And she stayed, stopped in Poland and got a job and is now still working for World Central Kitchen. She's actually in Florida right now, which is great. She's, uh, it was a, a beautiful story. And I, I had the, the chance, I, I work with another organization called the uh, Culinary Diplomacy Project, and I was asked to go to Brussels a couple months ago maybe was, yeah a couple months ago and cook and talk about uh cooking for refugees at the uh world uh, the, the german marshall fund uh they, they do a meeting every year where they talked it was mostly all about phila- uh, philanthropy and how it happens and what the german marshall fund can do to help um you know when they're gonna have to rebuild poland and uh, ukraine and all that stuff all the money that's going there there's a lot of
0: well, what i want oh, to what i want sorry say. did i go on too long about you're that topic? perfect you're perfect um, i never know i want to take a moment and just say thank you oh. thank you for going and I, look thank you know for... what it's
1: interesting you say that and sorry to interrupt but oh, please I, I had so many people it, it tell me like you know thank you thank you but it, it's it, it was what i did because i could do it they needed my skill i'm sure if they needed accountants some accountants would have shown up and done done that right <laughs> they didn't need accountants but um the, but it's like, I was just lucky enough that I knew how to do that stuff. You know, I can cook. I can cook for four people. I can cook for 15,000 people. So I had that. It makes a
0: very special person. Just because you can doesn't, there weren't 50,000 chefs who were there. No, there weren't. So. And I'm
1: lucky enough financially, I was able to do it. My, and the other thing is, my kids are old enough. My daughter's in college. My son is in 10th grade in, in high school. I felt it more important for me to be doing that and showing my kids what we do for humanity. So, my wife was home. I mean, you know, what am I gonna do? A 15 year old kid, he doesn't need to see me every day. I could FaceTime with him once in a while. Probably doesn't wanna see me every day anyway. But it was, I, I thought it was great. And the interest, when I got back to America, one of the first people to call was the headmaster of the school and says, I want you to come in and talk to all the kids about what you just did. So, that was really, you know, so that was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. I was show and tell that day. Um,
0: you know, one of the things, I- that I I took notes, you know, during one of our many conversations where you said it's not just about feeding, but nourishing lives. And I think especially when you're talking about refugees, and you just talking now about the importance of dignity, and the importance of feeding them something that's going to make them feel safe and familiar when there's so much trauma and chaos, right, I, I think that food can just be so grounding and a homecoming, even if you're not on your on your homeland. Um, so, what are some of what are some of sort of the big lessons? I don't know if I want to call them lessons, but observations or or things that you are taking away from that experience. Well,
1: from that experience, it was really just you know humanity and helping and seeing how many great humans showed up to help. There was from CEOs to whatever, people used to, they'd show up, they had no idea, some of them had no idea how to cook. I'd be like, okay, well, you're gonna go work the sandwich line. But, you know, they had to pay their plane ticket, find a place to live, rent a car, because we are in this town called Shemmel or whatever they, I can't even pronounce it, right? It was there for two months. but And, and you know, you, you're, you all of a sudden can take two weeks off of your life and just go do this. It was, it was really beautiful to be able to see that, that happen, right? Um, and and uh, yeah, I mean, feeding people is just, it's such a great way to connect it's it's such a even the volunteers that came to work, the stations that were just handing out the food, they would come back gushing about like, oh my God, this mom was feeding her kid and they the first you know they've been walking through the snow for a long time and they having a warm thing of soup or something it was just they, it, it's such a uh, it's such a beautiful thing and you can connect with people even if you don't speak the language. I was once uh, with a group of chefs and we went to Jordan and I got to I had the opportunity to go to Zatari which is a a a, a refugee camp, Syrian refugees, 90,000 Syrian refugees living behind these walls. And we chefs got to go in there and go into some of these people's, their refugee homes and cook with these women and children. And I got to tell you, I, I don't, I don't speak those languages. And I was, it was just, we had such an amazing time connecting with them and them seeing American chefs showing up and, Oh wow! They're just like you and me, and we got to. We, we, it was it was wonderful to see that sort of connection and be mm-hmm. and be together, and and just eat and laugh and not even speak the same language. It was kind of cool. So yeah, feeding people is just something that it just opens up a lot of great stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. Would you say that this particular experience changed you as a philanthropist in any way? Um, I think.
1: Yeah, probably. I mean, I've always been very philanthropic towards food organizations, but I, I think that just, you know, raising money is one thing, but getting in there and getting dirty was even more rewarding in a certain sense. And it was, and, and not only that, but inspiring other people to come, because I, I know a lot of people showed up because of me. I would, people would walk in and go, I saw your Instagram. I'm here. I'm like, oh, Jesus. Okay. <laughs>
0: The power of social media. It was interesting. actually right? where
1: my, my we live in a building, and my kids friends with uh, Jerry Seinfeld's kids, and his, mm-hmm. his, his and Jessica showed up at the refugees and helped make sandwiches. I was like, "This is great. How are you doing?" <laughs> Hi, neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, it was kind of funny. Like, yeah. So stirred her up to come, and she actually was great because she came with a couple friends, and they went to an orphanage, and they did some work there and they helped to bring a lot of awareness as well so the trickle-down is amazing to see mm-hmm. when you're doing stuff like that and you're actually physically doing it and, it, and, and to anybody I mean if you have the chance it's it, it's just great and as I said before I was just lucky enough that they needed me and they needed somebody that knew how to cook and to be able to do it and I, I just you know I ate it up mm-hmm. so to speak
0: literally and figuratively <laughs> yes, exactly. right and we often talk about um, emergency funding, um, oftentimes with Marissa Leffler, who's sitting right here and uh, heads up our global health portfolio, that typically there's a lot of funding at the outset of an emergency or a crisis. And then when there's another disaster or another crisis, then people will pivot and go to the next one. And it's very easy to get distracted because there's there are many disasters and emergencies that are happening concurrently around the world. But the reality is that oftentimes with emergency, there's the immediate need. And then there's also the longer term need. What's happening in Ukraine is going to take decades, if not longer, and we're we're still in the throes of active war, right? But when you think about refugee camps, for example, and Marissa and I and and clients often talk about um, the first is getting them into a safe place, getting food in their bellies, getting them um, cleaned up, getting them, you know, addressing the, the immediate trauma. But then over time, as they're going to perhaps resettle in a new, in a new geography education, sustainable housing, um, longer term ways in which to address the trauma that they face, socioeconomic implications, jobs, and oftentimes, that's where the funding actually dries up. It's it's thinking about the populations that you want to help support over the long arc of whatever the crisis is and so that's that's the way we think about the emergency funding it's obviously it's the it's the emergency need that needs to be addressed first but then what are you going to do um, in the long term as well
1: well yeah because there's a lot of times you know they fall out of the news and people don't start thinking about it that's and right. need, we need to keep that going and you're right when you're re when you're resettling you just imagine the the you know the things you have to get on you know, from education to I mean, think about this
0: one young woman you said who went on vacation, came home with her summer clothes, and will never see the inside of her apartment again, likely. No, her
1: brother's back there still, he's a computer nerd, she said, so he just does computer stuff for the war efforts, but he's like, you know, sitting in their apartment, and she's now in Florida. In Florida. (laughs) Okay.
0: So, we've been obviously talking about how philanthropy is driven by personal passion, Hmm. and what advice would you give to the audience about leaning in and perhaps even taking philanthropy to even greater heights?
1: I mean, I think that the most important thing is it's got to be personal. It's got to, you have to have a connection with it. I think uh, the gentleman over here talked about education and how important it was because of where he came from. And I think that's the kind of thing, if you're going to get involved in something, it's got to, it, it, it just makes so much, it, just, it makes more sense and it also just makes more you know it, it it makes you feel better, I mean, not that we're doing philanthropy to make ourselves feel better, but it does it just you, you can get emotional about it, you can get involved, you can jump in with both feet and and really make a difference I think it's that's that's the main thing I think that's mm-hmm. and also I think that if there's an opportunity to get involved and go out and actually do something and you know get your feet and your hands into it and and work directly you you just get such a bigger appreciation for uh, a, a charity. I work with, with City Harvest, for example. I go to the, they, we do these mobile markets. We set up like farmer's markets and go to certain neighborhoods and hand out food to underserved communities. And, and just being there and seeing the smile on people's faces, uh, of just receiving a bag of food that they can't afford is just, it, it's, I don't know, it, it you know, makes you feel like you, good reason to get up in the morning.
0: Mm-hmm. There's another, another quote of yours um, during one of our conversations. See, I was taking notes. <laughs> I see that, a lot of them. That's a lot of paper right success, there. Success, I know, look at this. Um, success is happiness, and helping others brings great joy and satisfaction. You're talking about what, what is success? We talked about wealth. We talked about success. We talked about happiness. Yeah. And how much joy you get from actually helping others.
1: Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I've, yes, everybody thinks success is, is monetary, but I think it's happiness and happiness. That's just another vehicle to get there by helping people.
0: I love a story that you shared about your daughter with oh. her American. Well, girl yeah, I doll. think also
1: we were talking about passing it down and, yeah. you know, trying to get your kids to be involved. And I think it's important to get them around the table and talk about things. And when my daughter was very young, I do remember. She had this. Uh, everybody might know these American dolls. They were very expensive dolls. Um, it, ridiculously expensive dolls Uh, and but it was like she felt she was older now and she didn't want to use them anymore and she wanted to do something with them so she actually came up with the idea if she could sell them and give the money to a charity and for a little kid i thought that was pretty good i think well, give ourselves a little pat on the back for the parents there but uh and so what we did was actually we got the two charities, the most I was involved in, Share Our Strength and City Harvest, I had her sit down, and my, actually my wife probably did that, had her sit down and read the, the mission statement of both of the organizations, and she picked Share Our Strength, No Kid Hungry, she wanted to help kids eat, and we put an ad on Craigslist, and somebody came and bought the dolls, and we donated the thing, and it was, it was, it was just so heartwarming to get, you know, to have the little kid involved in this and try to get them started early, so to speak. I know I should probably do more of it now that I tell the story. Should, I should probably be doing more of it now she's running around Tulane. I don't know what she's doing. Well, there you go. <laughs> uh, no, I wasn't. I was, my wife was. I was with my son at another thing.
0: Divide, divide <laughs> and conquer, yeah. Um, but you also talk, yeah, you talk about the importance of modeling for the kids.
1: Yeah, right? I mean, it's like, I, I remember a, a friend of mine who was a therapist one day. He's like, you know, I felt bad because I had all these restaurants, I was going to work all the time. He goes, you're supposed to. Kids need to see mom and dad go to work. Kids need to see mom and dad do charitable things. Kids, kids need to see that. Even it's it's an important thing to model. You know, do it, do stuff. Make sure that you know mm-hmm. they understand what you're supposed to do in life.
0: Mm-hmm. So, if people are interested in seeing what you're up to. What you're, where you are, what you're doing. What's the best way to sort of is it your Instagram? what, yeah, what is your I, social I, media situation? I, I put all that
1: stuff on Instagram. That's okay. the easiest thing. Yeah, Instagram okay. is the easiest thing to do. Yeah, I don't like really doing it all the time, but it, it's 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 actually amazing how how it inspires other people. Though I love that I love that it I, I do it because of that, especially with charitable stuff. I mean, sometimes the charitable stuff doesn't get as much notice as a picture of a steak, but I can't do anything about that. You know, it's 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 so sort of funny. I
0: think also the fact that people will show up in Poland or people will donate to the organizations or maybe all of a sudden City Harvest starts getting more hits and people doing more research as a result of you having you know providing visibility for them.
1: Yeah, I mean, so and it also helps me get feedback sometimes. I remember I got an I got an Instagram direct message from somebody after I posted doing something with City Harvest, and it was a person who said thank you so much for helping City Harvest. I used to use, I used to need City Harvest because I was down on my luck. And because they helped me out, I was able to get back on my feet. And now I donate to City Harvest, I give back. And that was to me one of those like, oh, wow, this is why I do this. You know what I mean? That was a great sort of uh, testimonial of why I I, I help those organizations out. I think that's something that helps, helps feed the soul.
0: Yes, absolutely. you know, and I really appreciate how when we take a look at your, let's call it your philanthropic portfolio, it's a representation of who you are and what's important to you. You know, if we were to have uh, a board with the the two or three main organizations, and you don't have the name associated, you want it to make sense, right? Uh, City Harvest, No Kid Hungry, and Brain Trust, right? Again, going back to the idea that philanthropy is biography, and it's a reflection, not only of who you are and what's important to you, but you can then also inspire others. Um, through and Jose's through organization through that. And, and World Central and Kitchen, and World Central yes, Kitchen. of course, of course.